Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Good day, everyone. We're living in a very anxious world, and I want to address that with two books that are now available for pre-order from Amazon or from your favorite bookseller. One of these books is called Calm Your Anxiety, Winning the Fight Against Worry. The other one is called Calm Your Anxiety, 60 Biblical Quotes for Better Mental Health. I'm very excited to present both of these books, which are based upon biblical teachings about anxiety and worry, especially as we find it in Philippians chapter 4. Both will be released simultaneously in September, but they're available now for pre-order, and that would be so very helpful. So check it out and calm your anxiety. Now today, I want to continue our series of studies through the book of 1 John, which is located near the end of the New Testament, that little book of five chapters. Recently, while traveling through Europe, I boarded a train and was seated directly across from a gentleman who looked as if he had come right out of central casting in the role of an old KGB agent. He looked like one of the old spy handlers in a Bourne movie or in a Mission Impossible film. I'm not sure but what he was an old KGB handler. He was dressed in a rumpled suit and tie. He spoke English with a heavy accent, and he was clearly an advocate for the Russian government. I said, tell me what's going on in Russia. He said, when it comes to Russia, you cannot understand her. You can only love her. I said, well, then, what do you think of Vladimir Putin? He said, Putin is answering to many different groups, but that Russia always has time, that Russia is patient, and that Putin knows this. I said, what do you think about the war in Ukraine? He shrugged and said, what is Ukraine but Russia? And what is war but diplomacy by another name? Well, I shared the gospel with him, going through the plan of salvation a couple of times because of the language difficulties, but he understood what I was saying, and at length he replied, I wish that I could believe as simply as you do. I said, but you can. And I quoted John 3.16 to him, and can only hope that I planted the seed of the gospel in his heart. Well, as the train pulled into the station, he looked at me with a weary smile, And he said, I'm sorry this has not been a relaxing conversation. But then, he said, these are not relaxing times. Well, with that, we ended our conversation with something we could both agree on. These are not relaxing times. So how do we navigate these difficult days? It's easy to be rattled all the time. But that's why we have this letter from John, the whole book of 1 John is written to give us assurance and more assurance and reassurance 
and more reassurance. To understand what John is saying here, we have to know something of the background of the book. I've dealt with this briefly in earlier podcasts, but let me review. In his commentary, Dr. Colin Cruz gives us a brilliant idea as to what prompted the Apostle Paul to write this letter. He suggests that near the end of his life, John published his gospel, the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John. That gospel, more than the other three, stresses the dual nature of Christ, that he is both God and human. John stresses the deity of Christ, and in a multitude of ways, he tells us that Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be Almighty God. The climactic point of the Gospel of John is when Thomas cries out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. John said this Jesus had been uh, crucified, and physically he had risen from the dead, and he sent this gospel abroad, especially among the churches in Asia Minor, over which he had responsibility. Well, apparently some of the people, particularly those with shallow Christian understandings but with strong Hellenistic backgrounds, thought John was going too far. They couldn't believe that he had such a high view of Christology, and they said, well, the apostle is old and senile. If you continue to listen to what he says and read what he writes, you're as foolish as he is. And it precipitated the desertion of large numbers of people from the churches. We get a glimpse of this. The key, I think, to it all is in 1 John 2.18, when John wrote, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it was the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. You know the truth. So John was saying, in effect, a lot of people have left us. They have left our churches and their propaganda has made you feel like you're foolish for not joining them. Some of you feel hurt and you're troubled, and you become unsure of yourself and your beliefs. But don't be rattled, be right. Don't be rattled, but be reassured. Let me quote Dr. Cruz here. He said, John's readers needed reassurance because their confidence had been shaken by the propaganda of the secessionists. His primary aim in writing 1 John was to assure his readers whose confidence had been shaken by the activity of these defectors. Assurance, then, he said, is the pervading theme of this letter. Well, with that as background, let's focus on the second paragraph of the letter, 1 John, beginning with chapter 1, verse 5. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, that's quite a paragraph. John opens here with a statement that God is light without a flicker of darkness. The terms light and darkness are used symbolically or metaphorically many times in Scripture. The context here suggests that John is saying that God is so pure and perfect and holy and faultless that there is not the tiniest trace of sin, pride, selfishness, or any impurity with him. This is also the same way that he begins his gospel. He said, in him was light, and this light is the life of men. Well, light can sometimes be disorienting. You know how it feels when you wake up in the middle of the night and turn on a light? It hurts your eyes. Even staring at a light bulb for a few seconds can damage your eyes. The flash of a camera can blind you for a moment. I remember when the solar eclipse occurred here a couple of years ago. We all had to wear very dark glasses to protect our eyes. God is a million times brighter, infinitely brighter, than any light we can ever imagine. His holiness radiates the light of all of the stars and the suns and the heavens combined and multiplied by billions. So based on the fact that God is light, John now makes three statements with contrasting ifs. If you look at this carefully in your Bible, you can circle six different ifs, three different sets of two statements that say, first of all, if we do this or if we do that, and then again, if we do this or if we do that, and a third time, if we do this or if we do that. Notice that in this paragraph that goes down through chapter 2, verse 2, there are these three pairs of statements that begin with the word if. John is contrasting those who are wrong with those who are right. He is drawing a contrast between those who have remained in the churches and those deserters that have left it. So let's look at the first set of ifs in verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. Well, he is thinking here of the deserters again. They claim that they had a relationship with God, that they had fellowship with him, that they were spiritual, and yet they rejected the gospel truth about Jesus Christ, which John had recorded in his gospel, and were not living out the kind of life that Jesus exemplified and exhorted us to have. John said they were lying. He said they were wrong despite all their claims to high moral caliber. This is precisely what is happening in our own day. Anti-Christians are popularizing every kind of devious moral choice and pronouncing it normal and healthy and to be celebrated. I read a children's book recently that's being used in some schools. The title was, It's Perfectly Normal. Inside were drawings and explanations 
of all kinds of sexual activities, and many of them deviating from the principles of Scripture, most of them, in fact. And the message of the book is that whatever you feel like doing sexually, it's all right. It's perfectly normal. But saying so doesn't make it so. If we claim a form of godliness and yet walk in darkness, we are lying. We're not living up to the truth. How many people today claim to have a spirituality to them? but yet they walk in darkness. But his counterpoint in verse 7 is, but if we walk in the light, as his in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. Well, what does it mean to walk in the light? As I said earlier, John is using the same language that he used at the beginning of his gospel. In the gospel of John chapter 1, Jesus wrote about Uh, or John wrote about Jesus saying, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To walk in the light means to receive Jesus Christ pure, perfect, holy, blinding light in his purity to receive him, to believe in him, and to be a child of God because of what he did for us, and then to seek to emulate him. And if that's true, then we have fellowship with one another. I cannot tell you how many times I've used this verse in officiating weddings or dealing with couples who are having marital troubles. I could do so because Katrina and I have proved this true verse in our own experiences. Now, Katrina and I were very different, but we were both committed to Jesus Christ, and we were both taught, back when we were young people, to start every day with our quiet time, during which we went to our respective desks, and we both read and studied the Bible, and prayed and met with the Lord. And at the end of the day, we joined together in prayer before we turned off the light. Neither of us was perfect, But both of us had a relationship with the Lord, and that was the glue that kept us together. It was a glue that never cracked or dried up or lost its its adhesive power. If we walk in the light as His in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And furthermore, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord, cleanses us from all sin. Now, John is only seven verses into this letter. Yet he has already brought up the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. I read recently something interesting about yellow fever, which is an infectious disease spread by mosquitoes. And there are still yellow fever outbreaks today, especially in Africa and South America. I was inoculated against yellow fever before I went to Africa some years ago. It's called yellow fever because many of those sick with it develop jaundice. Well, in 1925, the Rockefeller Foundation determined to find a vaccine to protect people from yellow fever. Their efforts failed until they found a 28-year-old man in Ghana named Asibi. He had a case of yellow fever. When they found him, he was sitting on a stool, his head was in his hands, and he had a temperature of 103 degrees. Mosquitoes were swarming around him. The doctors took blood samples from him, and there was something about his blood 
that was efficacious in developing a serum. And because of that, there was a breakthrough. From his blood came a vaccine, which is still being used today, nearly a hundred years later. That man's blood has saved millions of lives. But it's nothing compared to the blood of Christ, whose blood was shed on the cross of Calvary, and who cleanses us from all sin, and not just for ourselves, but he offered himself for all of the world. So if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship together, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That leads to the second contrasting sets of ifs in verse number 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John was still thinking about those who had flooded out of his churches. Some were telling others that there was never a need to ask for forgiveness. They had a set of beliefs that in some way they thought rendered them sinless. They had arrived at some kind of sinless perfection. We are not sure about the details of what they were saying. But at some level, they were claiming that they did not any longer need to ask for forgiveness. They had a relationship with God, which in some way gave them some kind of inoculation or perfection that allowed them to go through life without saying that they were any longer sinners. And these deserters were making the others feel insecure and uncertain. But John said to them, Don't be rattled. These people are deceiving themselves. We must learn to confess our sins because God is faithful to all of his promises that he has made about forgiving us. He is a just God who provides salvation because of the sacrifice of his son. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is a very practical issue. Several years ago, I was preaching about this on a Sunday night. The house lights were low, and I made a comment about keeping short accounts with God. By that, I meant that we shouldn't let our sins or bad habits or mistakes or bad attitudes accumulate. As soon as we realize that we have disappointed the Lord in some way, we should immediately confess it. Suddenly, I heard a man shout from the back of the room. He said, Sir, sir, that isn't right. I saw the silhouette of a young man standing in the congregation near the back, and he went on to say that when we receive Christ as Savior, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. He said we are totally forgiven, we are eternally forgiven, and we never need to confess our sins again. Well, I thought that was a very good point that deserved an answer. I didn't realize at the time that everybody in the room which I couldn't see very well, had suddenly become wide awake, shocked by the interruption, and afraid. There had been some violent incidents in churches, and just as I was trying to answer the young man, I saw several big ushers surround him and lead him out of the room. But nevertheless, even in his absence, I went on to answer his question. Yes, it is absolutely true that when we receive Jesus Christ, our Savior, we are made righteous in God's sight and all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. We are saved. We are safe. We are secure. Let's say, for example, that a born-again Christian man was walking down the street, and he saw a scantily clad woman. Let's say an arrow of lust flew through his heart, and in his distraction and moment of lust, 
he stepped off the curb and was struck and killed by a car. Well, I believe based on the mercy and grace of God and on the blood of Christ, this man, he went to heaven, even though his last conscious thought was sinful and he had no opportunity to confess it. The Lord had forgiven him at the moment of his conversion. But even though our sins may not cause us to lose our salvation, they do grieve the Holy Spirit. They quench the Spirit. They damage the vitality of our Christian life, and they hinder our fellowship with the Lord. And that's why we confess them. We want to abide in Christ and to have unhindered fellowship with the Lord day and night. When I was a boy, I drove my father's tractor into a tree and broke the headlight. Now, he would have understood and worked with me to fix it, except that I tried to hide it from him. And when he found out, he was very angry with me because I had not been honest. I can still remember his anger. Now, was I still his son? Yes, he never disowned me. But until I apologized and was honest and sought his forgiveness, there was a hindrance to our fellowship. Is there anything in your life you need to confess to the Lord? Anything that hinders your relationship and your walk with Him? John said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And now we come to the final set of contrasting ifs in verse 10 and following. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. These apostates and deserters were saying they were doing the right thing by leaving the church and rejecting the Christ of the fourth gospel. They said they were not sinning. They said they could ignore what God was writing. They could ignore his ministry. They could ignore the fourth gospel. They could ignore everything that he was saying to them, and they would be right to do so. They said they were not sinning. But John said to those who remained, in essence, actually, they are. And everything that I've written to you is a preventative for sin. If you will read my gospel and if you will pay attention to this letter, it will help retard sin in your life. But if and when you do sin, you can be sure of this. You have an advocate up there in heaven representing you before your Father. It is Christ Jesus, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. So if you go away and say, we can leave the churches and we're not sinning, you're wrong. But if you will listen to what I am saying, you will not sin as much. And when you do sin, you can know you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. One of my heroes is Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, or Crew. When he first started serving the Lord, he struggled with certain attitudes he tended to be proud and demanding, and he snapped at people, and he was selfish and sometimes immature. And Bill, well, he sometimes said that he felt very defeated and frustrated. He compared himself to the passage in Romans 7 where Paul said that he wanted to do things, but he didn't always do them. And the things he didn't want to do, those are the things he did, that he was a wretched man because he would so frequently give in to temptation. 
Well, dealing with temptation can be very difficult. On the one hand, we want to serve Christ with all of our hearts, but on the other hand, our sinful nature keeps getting in the way. But one night in Portland, Oregon, a particular biblical pattern flashed into Bill Bright's mind. He noticed what happened when he was breathing. He would exhale carbon dioxide and pollutants and poisons, things that his body didn't need, and then he would inhale fresh air and oxygen. And the process was so continuous that it was virtually unconscious. Bill realized that the spiritual respiratory system works in the same way. The Holy Spirit is often compared in the Bible to wind and to breath and to air. The same word, pneuma, can be translated spirit, breath, or air. We breathe in the Holy Spirit. We fill our lungs and our hearts with the Spirit. We pray for His fillness and yield to His influence. We breathe out then and exhale our confessions and our sins. So we're constantly breathing out in confession those poisons and breathing in the Holy Spirit. And that, Bill Bright said, is spiritual breathing. There's still a book about this. The crew booklet says, Spiritual breathing, which is exhaling the impure and inhaling the pure, is an exercise in faith that enables us to continue to experience God's love and forgiveness. It says we exhale when we confess our sins and agree with God concerning our sins and thank Him for forgiving them, according to 1 John 1, 9 and 1 John 2, 2. This confession involves repentance, a change of attitude and action, and we exhale as we confess our sins, but then we inhale when we surrender the control of our lives to Christ and appropriate or receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit by faith. We trust that He now directs and empowers us according to the command of Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. So I want to suggest spiritual breathing. We are continually to be confessing our sins, knowing that they are already forgiven, but we don't want anything to accumulate in our hearts that will grieve the Holy Spirit. We want then to breathe in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and this should be a continuous exercise in our lives. After all, we are not living in relaxing times, but we don't need to be rattled. We can be reassured. We can breathe. God has given us His Word so that we will not sin, but if any of us do sin, we have an advocate speaking on our behalf before the throne of God. It is Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So, my friend, don't be rattled. Be relieved. Be redeemed, be reassured, and be right. Thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. Remember to check out my two upcoming books, Calm Your Anxiety, Winning the Fight Against Worry, and Calm Your Anxiety, 60 Biblical Quotes for Better Mental Health. It's available now for pre-order. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing and engineering is done by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, 
and post them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you for tuning in and may God be with you until we meet again.